I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. Today, we're continuing on with Matthew. We're in chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. And we're following up on those parables we just looked at. So, Alan, why don't you put this into context for us? Thanks, Christy. Yeah, our our gospel lesson this week follows the uh, Matthew's three parables criticizing the Jewish religious leaders uh, for questioning Jesus' authority. And our lesson today begins a series of challenges presented to Jesus that will complete the chapter. Um, they're, they're continuing to challenge Jesus, um, his authority, and question him, and, and trying to entrap him, basically. We have this also in Mark. How, how does it compare to Mark? Well, actually, Matthew's account of this confrontation agrees verbally with Mark on most matters. It's not, it's very close to word for word. It's not quite word for word, but it's very close. Uh, the differences are primarily matters of emphasis, rearranging certain phrases or rewording them to conform to Matthew's purposes. And we'll, I'll highlight some of those differences as we go. Expected, I think, with what we've seen with how Matthew works through his material. Yes, indeed. Um, so when I read it, it sounds like it's kind of a setup. Is that an accurate? <laughs> yeah, I think read? so. I mean, I, it's, it's pretty much hinted at by the introduction, uh, in verse 15, then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So, I mean, uh, you, you, you expect that what is going to come is going to be a way to trap him. Now, only Matthew, however, inserts this statement here, and perhaps we should consider this statement to be the introduction to the whole confrontation scene, not just Matthew twenty-two fifteen through 22, but really going probably through mm-hmm. the end of the chapter. And in this way, it seems like Matthew may be calling attention to the Pharisees as the ones behind the attempt to entrap Jesus. So we've seen before it was the chief priest and the elders of the people. Mm-hmm. Now mm-hmm. it's the Pharisees that seem to take the lead. Now, I think there's a reference to the Herodians. There is, so, there is. Is that a Pharisee? Are they Pharisees too? No, we'll, we'll, but we'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, okay. I do okay. want to call, call our attention to the fact that the audience for Matthew's gospel will, have, will remember that the Pharisees had already conspired to destroy Jesus uh, back in Matthew 12, 14. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, okay. this is like already in, in the midst of his Galilean ministry, they were conspiring right. to destroy him. So um, this, this wouldn't come as a surprise. And so, and another interesting word um, was this use of the word disciple. Yeah, um, yeah. Matthew here. reports. Yeah, Matthew reports that the Pharisees sent some of their disciples, along with the Herodians, to carry out this plot to entrap Jesus. There's no other mention about Pharisees having disciples. Perhaps Matthew is reading in, his, reading in his perspective on the Jewish synagogue leaders who would have been disciples of the rabbis, but um, we, we really don't know what to make of that. Mm-hmm. Now, despite the fact also that the Herodians have been traditionally identified as collaborators with the Roman occupation, there's actually quite a debate in current New Testament scholarship as to who they truly were. They're only mentioned in the New Testament here and in Mark's version of this episode, as well as Mark's version of Matthew 12, 14 and Mark 3, 6. So, so, so 
we don't know much. Obviously, the name Herod is in there. So right. They must but have but some association. whether that meant they were part of his family, whether that meant they were part of his army, whether that meant I saw a note that said that there were some people who thought there might have been a connection with the Essenes and the Herodians. I think one of the problems is when you have these these groups that are little mentioned anywhere in historical evidence, we really don't know what to make out of them. Right, right. That's fair. That's fair. So um, as we move into this, then there's this this dialogue, which I feel like I feel like we need to have the hear the voice of it said out loud because <laughs> right, I think it has right. some irony in it, right? Well, and it's it's clearly insincere. Um, you know, teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with the truth and show deference to no one for you do not regard people with partiality. And again, this is really the setup. Um, you know, they praise him for being sincere and teaching truthfully, but Matthew has already tipped us that he they're trying to entrap Jesus. And perhaps the last part, you show deference to no one, and you do not regard people with partiality, was intended to embolden Jesus to speak against Caesar mm -hmm. in response to their question. Um, you know, we, we might say that they're buttering him up. Um, there's, a, there's a technical term for this. It's called captatio benevolentiae. In other words, I like that. <laughs> well, it's, in other words, trying to curry favor. You know, they're clearly okay. trying. This is, these, are, these are literary formulas for trying to curry favor with somebody mm -hmm. and trying to, trying to butter them up. So what do, what, do they, what do they ask then in this? Well, they ask, you know, essentially the question is, tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's verse 17. Now, the question whether something was lawful, and the, the Greek word is existin. It's a, it's a Greek verb, kind of like die, delta, iota, epsilon. It's sort of an, um, uh, it's sort of an impersonal verb that is used uh, just for this particular, it's, a, it's an irregular verb, it's used just for this particular uh, matter. So the question about whether something was lawful in this setting referred to the question of whether it was compatible with the law of Moses. Right. And so in this regard, right. they're clearly setting Jesus up to place him on what they consider to be the horns of an impossible dilemma. Right. They right. praise him for showing deference to no man and possibly implicitly including even Caesar. And then they ask him whether it's consistent with Jewish law to pay taxes or to Caesar. If he answers no, they have grounds to denounce him to the Romans. If he answers yes, he loses face in the sight of the people. Now, we should note that this question was part of the tensions between the Jewish people and their Roman occupiers, beginning with the revolt of Judas of Galilee in 6 CE when Judah came under the Roman administration. And, of course, those tensions led to the Jewish war that ended with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 CE. Right, right, right. Now, we should probably recognize that Matthew and his audience will be looking back on that event as a past event right. by the right. time we get to the gospel. Right. And so I think it's a, obviously, this is some kind of a test. Yeah, yes. yeah. And, and, you know, if the deception of Jesus questioners wasn't obvious enough up to this point, <laughs> Matthew indicates that Jesus was aware of their malice and replied, why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites, in verse 18. Mm -hmm. Now here, Matthew rewords Mark's phrasing a bit here. Uh, in Mark, it was, he was aware of their hypocrisy. But here, it's, he was aware of their malice, uh, mm -hmm. literally uh, evil. They're evil. It's the, it's the, it's the noun poneria, uh, from, what we mm -hmm. get, from which we get the adjective poneros, which is wicked or the opposite of, of dikaios, righteous. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Matthew has, 
has Jesus call them out explicitly as hypocrites, as opposed to in Mark's gospel, it just says he was aware of their hypocrisy. Now, this is going well, to be a significant str- theme. It's stronger, isn't it? I it is it stronger. It's stronger to me. It, sounds, it is. It's not that they're aware of hypocrisy. It's that they're evil. I mean, yes. That's, that's and then he more. calls them out as hypocrites, you know, publicly. Right. And so this is a significant theme in Matthew's gospel, as we will see when we move into the chapter mm-hmm. of woes against the Jewish religious leaders in Matthew 23. The accusation of being hypocrites summarizes Jesus' criticism of the Jewish religious leaders in Matthew. Mm-hmm. Um, they put on a show of piety, but in reality they live out of their own greed, their own desire for power, and disregard for human life. Yeah. So we move on. Um, and how does Jesus respond? Well, he solves the dilemma in a simple but brilliant way. He simply asks, show me the coin used for the, ta- for the tax in verse 22.9. And again, here Matthew rewords Mark's version. Mark simply says, show me the denarius. But Matthew rewords it to the coin used for the tax. Hmm. Tanamisma to kensu. And it's literally the coin of the census or the coin for the tax. And it calls attention to the fact implicitly that anybody who possessed such a coin had already accepted the Roman administration of Judea and very likely would have already paid taxes. So just having the coin sort of answers the question in and of itself. Yeah. So then the tax referred to was the Roman census, which constituted a poll tax or a head tax that was probably one denarius a year, as well as a tax on their agricultural yield. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, the Romans were, were famous for their ability to collect taxes sure. as tax people. And in particular, people that weren't citizens. That was one right. of the big things. Right, yeah. right. Um, so... Yeah, interesting. And so could they produce that coin? They do. Yes. And and again, I think it's significant. We, we may just tend to overlook this, but I think it's significant that Jesus' questioners themselves are able to produce what probably would have been a silver denarius. Mm-hmm. Now, apparently, you know, they were carrying Roman money with them. <laughs> and so Jesus asked them a simple question. Whose head is this and whose title? And of course, the answer is Caesar's. So at the time, the image would have been of Tiberius Caesar. And more importantly, the inscription would have read, Tiberius Caesar Dewi Augusti Filius Augustus, which would translate Tiberius Caesar, exalted son of the divine Augustus. So again, not only do they implicitly indicate their stance toward paying the taxes by possessing the coin, but they also acknowledge that they knew the inscription on the denarius, which would have been considered blasphemous by many in that time. Now, we should not, however, conclude from that that most pious Jewish persons avoided using the denarius. It was the coin of common commerce, and there was evidence that it was used widely. But it's still kind of an irony that, you know, they come asking him the question, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he says, you know... do you have do you have the coin for the tax and of course they do and just having the coin kind of exposes them as well of course they pay taxes they don't have any problems with with trafficking in 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 caesar's money (laughs) i have i have a couple of side questions for you one um 
did the, did the Jews have a currency at that time of their own? They did. They had the drachma, and it was used for temple uh, commerce. Okay. And the second question is, was it technically illegal by the Roman overlords? The drachma? Uh-huh. No, no, that was, it was something that was, still, that was just simply, it was used okay. for temple it's, commerce. Yeah. Right. Okay. So obviously, I, I mean, producing coins was obviously what you did is, is being in the leadership. So, right. but I think that's, I, 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 I don't know why I haven't thought of that before, but clearly there's an opportunity to not have a denarius on you and ha- and if you will. Right. So it's a very interesting. Well, uh, you know, again, the denarius was the was the um, common yeah. coin of well, commerce, and and right. the drachma was only used at the temple. But we we do have some evidence that suggests that that denarius the denarius could be used at the temple as well. Temple too. Yeah. Well, it reminds me a little bit of how the dollar. I mean, almost everyone all over the world has a dollar in their pocket mm-hmm. because you could still buy stuff. It, it mm-hmm. holds itself so well. So I remember mm-hmm. being in Russia way back when, and you were supposed to use rubles, but everyone preferred the dollar. Yes, and so they it's always a more stable currency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So this is this is uh, well for all their Jesus. for all their yeah. for all their supposed concern about the question of whether it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. The fact that they can pull one, pull a denarius, a civil denarius oh, yeah. out of their pocket yeah. kind of they gives are. the lie to their, to yeah. their, um, to their true intentions. You know, they, they yeah, don't, they're yeah. not concerned about paying taxes. They're not concerned about handling Roman money. They, they're, they're happy yes, to have, they're Roman already, money in they're already involved in it. Yeah. So how does Jesus respond to all this? <clears throat> well, um, so I think his response is, response is, again, brilliantly insightful and simple at the same time. Give, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. I mean, if anybody can quote a Bible verse, they can probably say, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Yeah, that's right. right, right. You know? Yep. Um, and so, obviously, this, is, this has made a big impact. Now, whether or not the implication of the image and the title was that the money ultimately belonged to the one whose image was on it, we don't really know that for sure. Jesus, in effect, answers them by describing what they had already been doing without much concern for whether it was lawful or not. They'd already been trading with the denarius. They'd already been paying those taxes. It's pretty obvious if they've got the coin for the tax in their pockets, they're not worried about it. On the other hand, Jesus reminds them of what they should have already known. The demand of the law goes far beyond any other claim. God calls for us to love him with all our heart, our mind, and our strength. And so, in effect, you know, Jesus says, pay Caesar his tax, but give your life to God. It's, it is brilliant. Well, and that's, that's consistent with Matthew's emphasis on, on doing the will of God, truly fulfilling yeah. all righteousness by doing the will of the Father. You right, know, and we've, right. We've talked about that throughout our, our journey through Matthew. This is this is a, a fairly significant emphasis in Matthew's gospel. Now, I, oddly enough, I think when most people read this, they see kind of a, a, a kind of relationship between church and state that pulls out of it, and of course that happens in the Reformation as well. They do, they do, and um, you know the, the reality is that um, this. Um, passage really doesn't address the relationship between church and state as at all. 
Um, you know, that's just not the point of this encounter. The Jewish religious leaders are moving toward openly entrapping Jesus, advancing their intention to destroy him. And so basically Matthew is showing that the hostility against Jesus is ramping up. But Jesus is able to see through their hypocrisy, and they betray themselves, basically, by their possession of the coin used for the tax. Mm -hmm. By contrast, Jesus calls them to recognize that God's claim on their lives is total and goes far beyond the demands of all empires and all emperors. Mm. And so, you know, yeah. it, it, it's, it's a brilliant move on Jesus' part, and it's, 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 a, it it's, a, it's a wonderful text. But it has nothing to do, really, with church and state. Church and state, which yeah. I think is... I hear a lot used that way. And of course, that's how we'll see it. Reformers using it that way. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's been probably preached on that way many times. Too, oh, yeah. Would be my guess. Well, and so, of course, the, 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 the reformers, like others throughout the ages, had their own uh, reasons oh, for yes. using this passage in, in reference yes. to church and state. Absolutely. So how does it conclude? Well, Matthew concludes this episode by reporting that when they heard this, they were amazed and they left him and went away. That's Matthew twenty-two, twenty-two in the New RSV. But I'm not particularly fond of the way the New RSV translates the verb thaumazo here. Now, we've encountered thaumazo yeah, in, our, in our journey through the Gospels, right? It's, it's very common for the people to respond uh, by being amazed at Jesus. But being amazed implies a positive response. Does, I don't think I that's I don't think that's consistent with Matthew's intent here. And right. and we see that translation in, for example, the Good News translation, the New American Standard Bible, the NIV, the New Century Version, the New American Bible, and the New Living Translation. It seems like primarily modern translations, uh, or late at least latter half of the 20th century translations, adopted this. I prefer the translation astonished, and that is one option for translating Thalmazo. Um, and that is the translation of the Common English Bible and Tom Wright's mm -hmm. New Testament for Everyone. I also like uh, the Net Bible. It has stunned. They were stunned. I like that. I do. Mm -hmm. Now, marveled, which is really kind of a more tra traditional translation, is the one that was used in English versions up to uh, really the Revised Standard Version. Um, the, the Geneva Bible, the, the King James Version, the American Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version, all had marveled. Um, and, and interestingly, the, mod the modern translation, the English Standard Version, also uses marveled. I'm, I don't think that's a very good translation because it really kind of is ambiguous. It, it's hard to... What does that mean? They marveled. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. Marveled. So I, I really think astonished is a better I, translation here in that it expresses the idea that they would not have been pleased with Jesus' response. Right. Other Keep places, thinking. other places in the Gospels, you know, we find that the, the the crowd are amazed, and and that's because they're 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 in awe and they're they're pleased with a lot of the things that Jesus says and does. I keep thinking of a, 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 like a, a modern word that. Uh, kids use today though the one i'm coming up with which i don't think is right what my son uses is jabated they were jabated they were jabated i've never heard that word <laughs> it's it's a it's a it's a it's a gen gen z word but okay I, i'm like oh maybe that's better maybe that's what they need <laughs> i don't think it's made its way to the dictionary yet. <laughs> no i don't think so either <laughs> <laughs> all right so but uh, yeah, I, I I agree. I think all of uh, stunned. I really like as you had described it, mm -hmm. um, and uh, but amazed. You're right. That has a that very positive sense. Yeah, it just doesn't seem to fit the context to me. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, um, stunned. I like astonished. You know, but yeah, yeah. 
I like debated, to be honest with you. <laughs> All right. And so uh, um, what's, what is significant then about this passage, just to, to summarize? Well, as I mentioned earlier, our lesson for today constitutes the first of a series of attempts to embarrass Jesus publicly. And in each case, the Jewish religious leaders fail. Now, in one sense, I think Jesus, Matthew wants to portray the Jewish religious leaders' rising hostility against Jesus, but perhaps also he was thinking about his own community and using these stories to um, basically encourage the weak and beleaguered community of Jewish Christians under fire from the local Jewish religious leaders of the latter part of the first century. Oh, so it's, yeah, that's, I, I hope, I think the reader would, I think the reader would catch that. that wow, I can't believe, yep. I can't believe they went this far. And, and so, well, and I think yeah, anybody who reads it with, from a faith basis is going to be amazed and think, wow, this is amazing that Jesus answered this so brilliantly, you know, and yet so simply. Right. <laughs> he just asked them to show him a coin. And the fact that, the very fact that they had the coin kind of would, if I don't know if they knew it or not, but it was kind of embarrassing to them because they kind of tacitly imply, admitted that, oh, yeah, we have no trouble with the, with, the, with the coin of the tax, so we have no trouble with the tax. <laughs> right. So right. it kind of exposes, you know, the, the fact that they, were, they weren't really asking him a real question. They, right. They weren't exactly. concerned about that at all. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you, Alan. We'll talk about some Reformation stuff in a, in a minute. Thanks, Christy. Hi friends, we're back and we're going to see, as, as we've already alluded to, that this passage was kind of an important one in the Reformation era. So Christy, tell us about that. Uh, yeah, Alan, actually it is and it isn't. Um, when we think of Calvin and we think having his important... Uh, Important verses in the Institutes. He doesn't reference this at all. In really? Institutes wow. At all. But of course, it's in his commentaries. And and I, it becomes important because it really deals with, in their minds, uh, relationships between church and state. Sure. And I've talked about this before. Um, and at least for the magisterial reformers, that is, the, the what becomes the Lutherans, the Reformed, and the Roman Catholic Church, there was an understanding that the church worked in and through the secular government. But there's some pieces here um, that you'll see that add some nuance with not only theology, but also um, kind of political um, thought that develop out of some of these ideas. So I'm going to start with the commentaries. And there, Calvin talks about the relationship of this Jewish tribute um, and comparing it to the, the taxes of Caesar. So in Calvin's discussion, and I saw this in Luther as well, by the way, uh, they claimed that the Jews long ago had traded the practice of tribute for paying the Roman taxes. So it, the, the, the Pharisees, in asking this question, um, they were trying to trap Jesus. So if Jesus said no, um, that it would be a sedition. Right. But if he said yes, then he would be an enemy of the people. So that trap we talked about. Yeah. And the interesting part of Calvin and Luther's assessment here is that the fallen human would already have succumbed to the secular rulership, that the identity of the tribute had already been lost, and therefore the world, even the chosen people, were living in the context of human rules. So it 
for them, it relates to the two-kingdom theory of Augustine, which right. we've seen before. Right. So in succumbing to the Roman rule and accepting their coin, um, they simply owed money to Caesar. That the surrender to Caesar made it clear that this was a problem of an earlier sin. Mm, interesting. In other words, the Jews had already made this decision long ago in, yeah. in part of their, if you will, their choice to disobey God and had already promised themselves to give taxes to Jesus. Mm. So, or, or to Caesar, I'm sorry. So it reminds me a little bit when I was reading it of, the, of when the people begged for a king and they got a king, um, but with the warning from God as to what the king would mean for the people, right. right? So this is what we really want. So as Calvin puts it, quote, if you cannot accept paying tribute, you should not have come under Roman imperium. The coinage testifies to Caesar's lordship over you, while the liberty you claim has in fact perished and been taken out from, out, out from under you by, um, by your consent, by your silent consent. Sure. So I'm not sure. Calvin, I'm not sure that their no. consent was all that silent. Myself, I, 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 I see, I see the 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 leaders and the establishment in Jerusalem as right. being as as concerned about their wealth and power as they were about I really agree. any concerns about fidelity to God. Right. Well, I think so too. Right. I think they so, used. I think they used the law of Moses when it was convenient to to uh, you know reinforce their own power. And when it was convenient to keep other people disempowered, I, I don't really, I don't really think that that this this was a a, a real issue for them. It, it, interesting, I, Calvin, you know, Calvin uses that word "silent" in there. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe um, I, I, I'm not sure. Um, I'm to what extent he he meant that, but saying, "Look, you've, you've already done this, so mm -hmm. um, you've, you've already consented." So according to Calvin, Jesus wanted to, quote, refute the idea that a people cannot belong to God unless it is free from the yoke of human rule. So give your life to God, which is one of the things Alan pointed out. God's rule is not violated, however, if humans follow a secular law. Of course, this leads into the discussion of whether people should follow an unjust ruler. So in other words, they're saying, look, you've already decided this. This is okay. You could follow the secular law and not be in conflict with God's law. Kind of a big deal. But then on top of that, then the next question that follows, well, what happens if the secular ruler is unjust? Well, but what, so we'll get what choice does a, does a common person really have in that situation, right? <laughs> exactly. And we're going to get to this in a little bit. So at least here, with Calvin and the other magisterial reformers, there is no conflict between secular rule and God's rule. They are two different kingdoms with two different sets of requirements. So what is required, says Jesus, is that those of the heavenly kingdom are required to worship God. So for Calvin, there's a perfect world of the soul where God is the lawgiver. But there's also the land of the sword, which does not prevent the service to God's kingdom. In other words, it's still, you, could have, you have to live there because there's people in that secular world that aren't part of God's kingdom, but you still have to make the world work. So it's a two kingdom theory. And therefore, because Calvin recognizes the legitimacy of the secular government, he goes so far as to say that disobeying the civil magistrates is quote, a rebellion against God. However, Calvin does have space here, and this is what's important for resisting a corrupt government. In that case, that civil government should be de denied.
I have to I have to wonder if if the question of what makes a government corrupt or legitimate um, doesn't have a lot to do with where they line up on the issues that were near and dear to the reformers. Exactly. <laughs> you know, that's it. Exactly. The magistrates right? who agreed with the reformers were the, were the were the ones who were you know established by God, and the ones that didn't were the corrupt ones because exactly. because the reformers seem to have a vested interest in the protection of the various princes under whom they they found you know they found protection from the catholic church exactly exactly so i think we understand this 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 case right that you're pointing out this theological case of Luther and Cal calvin are putting forth but i want to put in a secondary discussion and so this is going to take us just to some raw history, which is that the early modern period coincides with the development of a modern political state. And with that, we think particularly about the nation state. Now, this a nation state has, and this is this is er, what I call early nation, nation building. This is not 19th century, 20th century uh, nation building that you're going to see in the modern era. So there's a little difference, but still, they start to have this idea of kind of a national identity. So a nation state has a definable ter territory, laws that are recognized by a governing body, a population that responds to the state. And during the Middle Ages, so I'm going to go back, the once Roman Empire had disintegrated, and the German Tories in particular that never fell to the Roman Empire had this similar unorganized structure. The result in the Middle Ages was a system of governance known as feudalism. And this is where a petty king or lord would have control over a tract of land which, ha which was held by those who fought for him. Um, they owned allegiance to, allegiance to the lord as a vassal and promised to fight for him when needed. And that vassal may have his own land and his own vassals. So a web of localized power developed. Sprinkled throughout these territories were free cities that did not owe, owe allegiance to a lord and various holdings of the church that put a bishop in charge. And in the case of the church holdings, a bishop may hold vassals of his own and his territories acted similarly like, a, like the fief, the traditional fiefdom. So on the eve of the Reformation, this is the political structure of Europe. And it's important for it's the political reality that the in which the Reformation developed. Well, and I think it's hard for those of us who, you know, live in this particular political system with its history to even fathom that. I mean, I guess maybe the best analogy would have been the fact that the original 13 colonies were, were originally 13 independent entities, mm -hmm. and they each had their own governments. Some of them had right. their own religions, you know, and and um, I, I think it's I think it's hard for a lot of people these days to imagine a, a Central Europe being just uh, really this this collection of all these independent kingdoms, all these principalities that right. were larger or smaller depending on how strong the Lord was or the right. Prince was. You know, and, and that sometimes, I mean, they each had their own language and, and you know, it was all, all these separate little territories that were just operating independently of each other. It's hard Absolutely. to fathom that, I think. 
It is. It is. And yet sometimes, you know, if you take a moment and think about some of the things that are dividing countries like now, like we just watched mm -hmm. the Ukrainian-Russian war and this this Warner group, this this, yes. this militia acting separately. We see a lot of the, when you think about the, the gang power in Mexico, mm -hmm. the drug cartel power, mm -hmm. that have their own militias, yep. that then they, the state doesn't really have control over their territory. I think you could get a tiny yep. glimpse of, of this. So... Now, before we tie this all together, I might remind you that we had a unifying church identity and that we call the medieval church. And while it was corrupt, which we've talked about, which the reformers talk about, it still held that religious identity over all of Europe, a unifying force known as Christendom. And there was one obvious omission, um, which was Spain. And Spain was dealing with a struggle between um, the Christians and the Muslims um, and, and the Muslim territory, which they called all Andalus. And so this was, there, there was if there was this constant um, reconquista to recapture Spain going on mm. all through the, the high middle ages and the late middle ages to recapture all Andalus in the name of, um, in the name of the Christian king and queen. And so it was in 1492, that Spain would kick out the Muslim population and unite itself under Ferdinand and Isabella. And you know them from American history. Sure. And, but with that, Spain became a really powerful nation state with this unique identity. And it was under the same monarchs, of course, that they discovered the new world and they would become super, super rich. Sure. And mind you that Ferdinand and Isabella are going to be related to the Holy Roman emperors and so that's going to bring a lot of power then into these separated German states. So it's a very interesting time. It starts to push this desire for unity. Well, and we should probably just, I thought, think it might be helpful just to back up and point out that, you know, not everybody may realize that the, when, when uh, the Muslim um, conquest took place uh, in the 8th century, uh, several hundred years before this, you know, that they gained a foothold in Europe, uh, especially in Spain and in Eastern Europe. And, and um, that, um, I mean, we still see some of those problems today, but, but that, you know, this was what was going on. This is what the people in Spain were dealing with was that, you know, a big part of what was Spain, at least the southern part of Spain, was held by Muslim right. powers. Yeah. And at what point almost all of Spain is the very, very north Mm. was all controlled by Muslim power. Yeah. And then slowly Christians started to move in and right. recapture that land. And mind you, even those areas in Spain, I mean, when Ferdinand and Isabella married, they combined two of the bigger territories together because they still mm. had that kind of pockmark look. So they were then kind of united. Um, so this political thought and power became part of the cry of the early modern kings to mm -hmm. consolidate power. Mm -hmm. And so we begin to see this movement to create national identities, not to the extent of the 20th century, but there is a push for power. And more than that, there's an opportunity to look at the Reformation as a means to break away from the power mm. of the papacy. Yep. And let me insert in there, this is the same time when what are we getting? A push for vernacular literature in particular, mm -hmm the Bible printed in the languages of the people. Yeah. So we start to get our first English Bibles and our first German Bibles and our first French Bibles, et cetera. 
Um, so. Well, and it seems see, it seems again, you know, while while the reformers were were happy to have the support of the princes in in protecting them from the church, it sounds like the princes were happy to have the sort of the 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 work of the reformers to to legitimate them breaking away from the power of the Absolutely. Catholic Church as well and, and establishing their own national identities. And that was, you know, Henry VIII in England. Yeah, sure. Perfect example there, right? Sure. It was just this opportunity to say, wait a minute, I could get out from under the thumb of the Pope with all this money going there and keep it here for me and increase my coffers and increase my power. Mm-hmm. And so we start to get the theory of divine right of kings, which is not going to come into fruition for another 150 years, but it's you could see us moving that way and of course we end you know the usually historically we we end that with 1715 as we see the breakdown um the death of louis the 14th and then we move into um these various revolutions right different different plans so um so we see also the roman catholic church as a player in the unification of the nation state they either support kings that give them military and financial Mm -hmm. support on the other hand, early early nations could use the Reformation, Reformation as a means to separate themselves from the papacy and identify with Luther or Calvin. Yep. So I think you could probably see where this passage right. becomes important, especially when we turn to Calvin and his comment on being able to resist a corrupt government. It's interesting. Well, it's sort of a perfect it, proof text for all of this. Exactly. Luther and Calvin both identify a secular ruler as having just authority, but this is more of only a means to handle the kingdom of humans. So I turned, when I was looking at this, I turned to the work of one of the finest early modern scholars, Thomas Brady. And as Brady points out, the political environment of Luther in particular is what led to what becomes Luther's contribution to state ideology. And according to Brady, Luther married married Augustine's theory of two kingdoms into a, quote, grand vision of reality. And this is rooted in justification by faith alone. His theory was thus rooted in Augustine's language, but not in his Mm -hmm. structure or spirit. In other words, in Luther's theology, the church need not have authority over governments. This, This is a theory, not necessarily the reality. But I think it's important for the reality of this line of thinking as it led to some pretty steep consequences, in particular, the German Peasants' War, 1525, where the peasants, feeling empowered by their own spiritual lives, also felt they could overthrow their lords and secular authorities as they claimed empowerment by God. So corrupt rulers, if you will. (laughs) What is important here is that Luther still legitimizes secular power being from God, but not corrupt power. Mm -hmm. It is the means by which the secular power holds order. Yeah. So what an interesting balance. So it's 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 redefined now, um, and the church, the the one overwhelming church, doesn't get to decide what is is legitimate. So, in other words, it gives a lot of power to the people. Ah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what becomes important is that the state conforms to the correct doctrine and constructs its governance in according with the doctrine, mm. but does not take a submission, submissive position below the church. 
ideally the church leaders and the government work together. So that's what we see in the Lutheran territories and we see in the reformed territories. So this is what I talk about when there is no division of church and state, or at least in the modern sense, but in terms of individual consciousness, there's much more emphasis on the expectation of the individual to accept the responsibility in the church through the priesthood of all believers. It's empowering, and it leads to a strong political ideology of human responsibility to the state, mm -hmm. and conversely, to uniting against a corrupt state. So, if you will, render under, under Caesar what is due to Caesar, unless it is corrupt. Mm. Hey, it's still, I still, <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm hearing is, is um, when the state is, is in line with the ideals of the Reformation, then we want to unite with the state to be able yep. to create this um, sort of new Christendom order. And where the state does not align with the ideals of the Reformation, then they're corrupt and we should resist them. <laughs> yes, and then we should resist them. And what we get are two camps, by the way. We get the Catholic League and then we get the Schmalkaldic League. And the Catholic League is, again, all those who identify with the, the papacy, all those who fall into that ideology and on the Schmalkaldic League you get the unification of the basically the Lutheran states mm -hmm. and all those who are following it so you end up with armed political camps that are based on this kind of uh, political uh, religious political identity so seems to me that they strayed far away from rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's and rendering unto God what is God's I agree. They, they got I caught agree. up in the first part and, and didn't pay close enough attention to the last part. <laughs> uh, exactly. And, of course, this is going to lead to the French Wars of Religion. We've yeah. talked a little about that. It's yeah. going to lead to the Thirty Years' War. Yeah. And it's not until we hit the end of the Thirty Years' War that we really start to move away from from this, this well, at least within Western Europe, this kind of religiously charged political identity and we start to really begin the process of separating church and state at least in the west yeah not true of our muslim countries yeah so yeah. all right thanks christy thanks So we're back, and we're going to follow up on, on this discussion about how this passage was used to justify uh, both religious and political um, actions in the by the Reformation era, uh, both by the Reformed leaders, the Reformation leaders, and by the civil authorities. Um, and, you know, I was, I, I, I was thinking, and I wanted to just kind of see what Christy thought about this and maybe see how we can apply this to our day. It seems to me that I'm not even sure the, the religion, the, that, the, that the Reformation, uh, that the Reformers even were aware that they had this agenda going on because it was just, it just seemed self-evident to them. It was the, these were the developments that were going on in their world and it just seemed like this was the natural step. And so this was just simply uh, self-evident to them, just, just, to, just the way that to us it seems self-evident that church and state should be separate. You know, to them right. it seems right. self-evident that church and state should be united. And, and um, I, you know, I, I, it kind of reminds me of the fact that, you know, the, the fact that the Pharisees sent their disciples and the Herodians to entrap Jesus. Um, and to them, it seems self-evident 
that Jesus was not from God. He was not a teacher sent from God. He was not someone who was teaching the truth. All the things they said to try to curry his favor were the opposite of what they really believed about him. And so I'm just kind of, I'm wondering about this whole idea, this tendency for us to read a passage like this and to assume that it must mean what we think it means because of the just assumptions we make about life. Right, right. And I I, I agree. I think... <clears throat> One of the biggest challenges in terms of, of, I think you have to go back with Luther in particular. Um, Luther really, really believed that the Bible had a clear message, at least early on. If you just could read it, you would you would be able to have the same lens that he would have. But what happened um, here was that as people became empowered to read it in their through their own lens, he found that it didn't have that unifying force. And so he actually um, he actually laments. Um, I'd have to on civil authority. I think is the name of the tract. Um, laments that oh wow, people are gaining too much confidence in their reading, and they're advocating for this kind of dangerous separation. And then we saw this then in some of the splinter groups from you know I've called them the radicals in the past, who do try to create their own you know individual. A unique little little governments and so based on their own was, unique reading of the new testament usually exactly yeah. exactly so you know they came back on that saying okay we're not really there we have to work in tandem with what the true church is to have a secular government because these people are running amok well, and, and I mean, that's where you have the whole idea of the rule of faith coming in as something that's an important interpretive principle, you know, that, yeah. you know, the, the consensus of, of what the church believes um, uh, becomes an interpretive lens for, for the Bible. Right. But, you know, in general today, it's one of the, it's one of the big problems, right? People see, you know, I, this is one of the problems with the prosperity gospel. They come in and, gosh, I've been really blessed. I have all this stuff. It must mean because... God is pleased with me. God's <laughs> pleased with me. And, and then they start reading that into the, mm -hmm. you know, and the, the eisegesis, if you will, which is really a challenge um, to want to see in it what we want to see in it. And, of course, I remember studying... Of course, we studied liberation theology in college and in seminary, but I remember my first introduction to liberation th theology in high school um, and just finding it a whole different lens mm -hmm. from which to, to understand Scripture. Yeah. Um, well, and, and you, know, um, one of, you know, one of the things, <laughs> one of the things that I've encountered you know, was when I was a younger person, when I was a younger man, you know, that, that someone who was older would say, well, I can read the Bible for myself. I don't need somebody, some young person with a PhD to tell me how to read it. Yeah. Right. And, and I would never presume to tell anyone how to read the Bible, but at the same time, you know, there's some interpretations, some readings of the Bible that are clearly off. They're just not not consistent with with the the uh, you know the facts of the text. They just don't line up, and and so, you know, we we sort of have this challenge, I think, in our context between this idea of the priesthood of all believers and and direct access to God and the ability to read scriptures for ourselves, and yet this this need to have some sort of um, 
uh, boundary markers, I guess, to say, you know, this is the this is the path on which the faith has traveled, and if you right. stray too far outside the boundaries, you know, you you really are off track in terms of your reading of the Bible. If if your right. reading of the Bible doesn't isn't consistent with what we know. Um, to be the teaching of Jesus, with what we know to be consistent with the great commandments, if what we what we know to be consistent with the context and and with with sort of the consensus of faith, um, then then we need to go back and look at it again. I exactly. I I wanted to pull this in. I think another way that the Bible is read or interpreted and how especially how people take it is through some of our dramatizations right so i was i all my church is trying to get me to go out to watch the chosen have you watched this at all i've had people try to try to get me to watch it i haven't (laughs) i haven't watched it either oh it's wonderful it's wonderful and i know anytime you do a dramatization Mm -hmm. you are having to make all kinds of choices interpretive choices interpretive choices what what words do you choose? How are people interacting with each other? Are you choosing American forms of interaction that, that really don't make sense? I mean, and so I just, I, I've been resisting it because it's I, it's the kind of thing, I mean, I, as a kid, I, I still see Moses at the Ten Commandments, right, you know, right, right? right? Because I watched that so many times as a kid that it impacts how I read scripture. It probably always will, mm-hmm. you know? Um, which is not fair to the scripture, right? Right. right. And yeah, you know, I think about the Passion of the Christ, right. and you know, I think I think the Passion of the Christ was pretty well done, and yet you see some some distinct Catholic um, traditions mm-hmm. coming in with with whether the Stations of the Cross or whether it's the whole presence of this uh, of Satan in the Garden, you know, and the embodiment of Satan in this androgynous being you know it's there are a lot of things about the about it that are that are clearly things that you can't you can't really justify based on the bible and that's something that's one of the challenges we run into i think is that people's nearest people things that people hold near and dear as as something that is that is like just true without a doubt based on the bible there's nothing in the bible to support it right and and you know issues about heaven and hell you know I mean, the Bible speaks very little about either one of those, you know, about the afterlife and in general. And, right. and, you know, and so as we've talked before, you know, most people's images of the afterlife are shaped by, by um, Dante Alighieri or by John Milton or, you know, by, by some of that language. Right. Oh, exactly. I was thinking as you were talking, I just picked out my, some of my hymns for Christmas and Advent and my church likes to do a little bit of Christmas music before, um, but I just picked out in the bleak midwinter, <laughs> you know, because obviously Jesus came at winter time when the snow was coming down, <laughs> lying on the ground, you know. <laughs> right? Well, because December twenty fifth was in the middle of, of winter in 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 England, where that where that hymn was written, right? <laughs> I know, and yet it's so pretty. I put it in anyway, but I'm just like, yeah. oh, man. you know, our perceptions are obviously so skewed. It might have been a sandstorm, but it probably wasn't a, you know, nice white winter frozen. Well, and I wonder, I wonder, I think about the Pharisees and how they went away astonished, you know. I wonder if they really even were able to comprehend what Jesus had done. 
I, I wonder if they were really able to even hear and, and recognize that, you know, just by having the denarius, they were tacitly admitting that they not only had no problem collaborating with the Roman government, they also had no problem with the question of whether it was lawful to pay the tax. And so it was right. a false question. They were just trying to trap him. I they wonder if they even realized that. I wonder if they even got well, that when they walked away. Or if they were well, they, they were just debated. Were they, they were or, or stunned? You know, they were just dumbfounded when they, they just didn't know what to right. think make of it, right? Right. I, I wonder right. I wonder if they even were able to hear the point. You know, yeah, so you've got you've got Caesar's silver coin in your pocket. Give, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And, and you know, just the, obviously they didn't have access to Matthew's gospel, right? But right. in the context of Matthew's gospel, the implication is clear. What, what, is, what, what belongs to God is right. one's whole heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And what belongs to God is, is the commitment to seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness right. and to right. seek to fulfill all righteousness in one's life. You know, as you're talking about this, wondered. I don't think they. I, I don't think they had a clue. And I, I think sometimes I think it's just written. They're made to look kind of stupid, right? I keep thinking of like Home Alone movie where the thieves are right, right, idiots, right, you know, and right. and almost like, oh, you idiots! I mean, Jesus has just. Uh, you've just made you look really stupid and not that jesus was intent but it, it was just like well and i don't i don't think of it that way i don't think of them as bubbling idiots i think of it as just simply you know their their understanding of what it meant to honor god was so foreign to the reality that jesus was representing that they yeah. just couldn't even couldn't, wrap couldn't their even wrap their brains about it, and and yeah. to obviously, yeah. and, and I must confess, there are times when I feel like that's the case today. You know that I'm trying oh, to, I agree. I'm trying to preach and teach about this kingdom that claims all of our lives, and and people are listening to it and thinking, oh yeah, that sounds great, but they but they have this very narrowly construed mm -hmm. image of what that looks like that means that you give a certain you give something to the church monetarily not not a tithe by no, by any means tithing has gone the way of the dodo you know in church you don't tithe right. you just give something to church you show up as often as you can on sunday you don't necessarily have to be there every week but you show up as often right. as you can and you try to serve on a committee or you try to help out here and there and and that's giving your whole life to god <laughs> that, uh, yeah i i know what you're saying i it's so interesting. I, I have these lovely people in the church choir, but they're not singing on Sunday. And I'm, I'm pretty sure they just won't come. They'll take a day off. They need a mm -hmm. day off. And I'm like, really? Really? We need a day off? Meanwhile, and, and, and not, by, not that I don't have plenty of, 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 of problems here, but I'm thinking I have a day off here pretty soon where I'm not on Sunday. And I'm thinking, I, I, I'm already looking at what church I'm going to go visit. You know, I just... I, the wonderful opportunity to share with others and not have to be in charge of a service. It's right. uh, wonderful to me, but um, it makes me sad that they don't feel, I'm not sure they even feel guilty anymore. <laughs> well, I mean, the things that are important to us, you know, yeah. our, our homes, our families, our careers, our financial security, you know, our sports teams. Our sports teams. These are the things that are important to us. And, and church just kind of fits in there among all the rest of them. Yeah. And it's not that 
God's claim on our lives is total, and every aspect of our life belongs to God. It's that, well, we give God this this part of our this you know, when we're when we're up to it, we go to church on Sunday, and that's giving God our our whole lives. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we haven't even come close. No, we haven't even come all. close. Not yeah. at all. So I don't know. I, I I hope some of these thoughts are helpful in terms of thinking about how to address this passage. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, thanks, Alan. Thank you, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.